broke my glasses today, so I guess I'll have to do it the old-fashioned way. Probably be squinting a lot today. This ought to be a good one. The parable of the soils. The different types of soil. Gerald, do you remind the ushers to lock the doors so nobody can sneak out? Well, we'll just have to go with it. You noticed with Isaiah and the charge for him to go forth, his commission was one of judgment, right? Well, if you turn with me to Luke chapter 8, we'll find a familiar parable, perhaps one that has become a little bit too familiar. Uh, It's possible to hear a passage over and over again so many times that we grow dull to what God's wanting the reader to see and hear. And I'll begin reading in verse 4. When a large crowd was coming together, and those from various cities were journeying to him, Jesus spoke by way of a parable. The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled under foot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil, and it grew and produced a crop a hundred times as great. And Jesus said these things. Jesus would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. His disciples began questioning Him as to what this parable meant. And Jesus said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Note the commonality in the parables. All of the types of soil get to see and they get to hear. Then Jesus provides this explanation to his disciples alone. Now this, uh, the parable is this, The seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no no firm root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. The word of the Lord. This marks a turning point in Jesus' ministry. Now he begins teaching predominantly in parables. In fact, Matthew 13, verse 34 suggests from this point onward, now as Jesus will address the crowds, he will no longer speak to them except in a parable. The text will provide us a reason why in a few moments. Parables, they are an earthly illustration, a common earthly everyday illustration of, an, of a spiritual truth, of a, of a heaven, heavenly reality. And in this passage, Jesus uses a common, everyday illustration 
uh, of sowing seed. Often it's referred to as the parable of the seed. I prefer to refer to it as the parable of the soils. Because it's really the soils that we are to examine and look at ourselves and ask ourselves, well, what type of soil are we according to the parable? That's what we're supposed to give our attention to. And having grown up on a grain farm myself, raising crops, I, I especially appreciate this parable. Really, it leaps off the page. Just as it would have for uh, most of these people listening to Jesus, it would have really intrigued these crowds what he was saying. Everyone in this audience knew a little something about sowing seed and growing uh, in that agrarian, uh, agrarian culture. They, there are a lot of agriculture in that. Everybody knew something about sowing and reaping. It can be a little bit difficult for modern urban dwellers to grasp today. Fortunately, you're all intelligent people. I can see that. All you need is an ear so that you can hear. In verse 1, people are presented as having traveled from everywhere now. Many cities, many different towns to hear Jesus. So we should take note that this is a very diverse crowd. They come from many different origins. The types of soil, if you will, in this crowd are going to be diverse. Some in the audience outright oppose Jesus. They are against him. Others are superficially committed to Christ. Many are weighing in their minds what would be the cost of following Jesus. How long would that go on? And at least there are a few. There is a remnant. There is a stump. At least a few are firmly devoted to him. They will follow. They will persevere. The story portion, meaning the, the front portion of the parable that everybody heard, would have left the crowd a bit puzzled. A sower went out, and some of his seed fell beside the road. It's then described as being trampled underfoot, because beside the road is where the beaten path lies. That's where people walk along the side of the road. The path becomes beaten. The point is, the beaten path is compacted. It is hard. It is flat. It is where people's feet have been walking. It's hard. It's difficult to penetrate. It's impenetrable. The seed therefore sits atop the soil in that path. The birds see it right away. They come in, they snatch it right up. Easy pickings for the birds. Other seed fell on rocky places. They have no depth of soil. Nothing to retain the moisture. Uh, So Matthew says that seed was scorched. It sprouted up quickly, but it was scorched. Luke says it withered away quickly. Third, there was some seed that fell among thorns, and those thorns grew up even bigger choked away what what had developed from the seed. Now what's the obvious problem in this parable? The problem is no farmer would ever sow seeds in any of these three soils. Everyone knew that would equate to seed wasted. It's wasted seed. And you could ask any farmer today Go around to any farming community and they will assure you the seed is very expensive. Very expensive. It's very precious. uh, It always has been immensely valuable. Robert MacIver, Vice President of Avondale College of Ministry and Theology in Sydney, Australia, researched and discovered that during this time period when Jesus lived, the typical expected yield from a bushel of grain 
after it was sowed in good soil, would yield about four bushel, approximately four bushel of return. That means on the average of one bushel of seed that was scattered, you'd get about four bushel back. MacGyver also began his teaching career as a professor of mathematics. That I am not. But I did go to high school long enough in order to figure this math out. If you begin with one bushel of seed and you waste three quarter of it, throwing it away, uh, so you effectually only have one quarter of your seed that falls on good soil and, and your yield is four times, how much would you gain at harvest? Nothing. Nothing. You'd have a quarter of your seed given a return of four times, and you'd end up at the end of the season with a bushel, just like you started the season with a bushel, you'd have nothing. There would be no uh, gain realized. We had a word for that kind of farming back in North Dakota. Bankruptcy. Bankruptcy. You follow me? After all the hard work of sowing, The increase for growing season would be net zero. File that in your mind. That will come back as we continue through this in the next passage. There would have been zero gain. So Dad and I, we followed the old farmer's almanac. You would read in there how to sow in the best practices manual. We didn't waste seed by throwing it off on the side of the road. We didn't toss it among the rocks. We didn't throw it in the thicket of the trees. We prepared good soil. That's what farmers do is they prepare good soils. In fact, farmers uh, prepare soil so meticulous, meticulously, uh, you can watch, and they have all these tractors and implements to break up the soil um, to, to give a level seed bed so that the seed will reach the right depth to get enough moisture yet not be so deep that it can't grow out of the soil and can't reach the sunlight. Your seed has to penetrate into good soil. And, and a farmer has to be careful. If he isn't careful, uh, the nice old man at the Federal Land Bank is going to come and take inventory of his equipment. That happens to a lot of farmers. In fact, in the early 80s, as I was growing up, many of you remember the droughts that went on and on. You remember Willie Nelson and Farm Aid and all those things and all the farmers that were failing. And I was on the farm in that time period, and we actually had uh, the nice banker man come out and take inventory of our equipment. So that at a time of an auction, as it wasn't looking good, they could then sell that. Fortunately, the rains came in that season, and ours was one of the farms that had the blessing of being able to survive through that. But the point is, nobody farms like the parable indicates, and the people that are listening to Jesus know it. In Jesus' day, that wouldn't just be losing your equipment, it would be starvation. You wouldn't have enough food to feed your family. Those who were in the crowd that were hard-hearted, like the Pharisees that we've been studying, they, they would have said, this story is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. They'd probably ask something like, what kind of teacher would share such a ridiculous story? No one would ever farm like that. What stupid talk is this teacher trying to tell people? Luke indicates, so we know, The seed represents the Word of God. 
In Matthew's account, Matthew 13, verse 19, you'll find Jesus says, The one who hears the word of the kingdom does not and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. And this is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. So the seed sown in the hard beaten path yields nothing. Yields nothing. You have to ask yourself today, uh, am I hard hearted to the word of God? Am I letting it penetrate? Or do I just think this, this, this Bible talk is stupid? You have to ask yourself that question. Because Jesus employed the use of these parables for a couple reasons. And primarily it's judgment. Do you have ears to hear? Do you have eyes to perceive? Jesus had par- uh, gave parables for judgment and for mercy. And, and listen close to this, folks. This parable, as recorded and given by Mark in chapter 4, verse 10, says this. As soon as Jesus was alone, his followers along with the twelve began asking him about the parables. And Jesus was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside meaning outside the kingdom. To those who are outside the kingdom, they get everything in parables. So that while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. Sound like Isaiah? Notice Jesus has already predetermined who is in the kingdom and who is not in the kingdom. In fact, the judgment is exactly as we read earlier from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, where God's command to Isaiah is this, Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. God used the preaching of Isaiah as a judgment. It actually hindered conversion as a manifestation of God's judgment on Israel. How do you like that for an explanation of Isaiah's cry? Here I am, Lord. Send me. How many times have we used that in evangelism? And God sending Isaiah with a message of judgment... Quite an odd evangelism verse when you really think about it. But that isn't half of it, folks. In Matthew 13, Jesus himself quotes this passage from Isaiah in full. While he's giving this parable, Jesus is quoting Isaiah. And again in Mark 4, verse 12, Jesus says, using parables, he uses parables so that they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. How do we make sense of that? What Jesus is suggesting is that these people are outside my kingdom, and through the use of parables, I am going to ensure there is no remote chance that any of them is going to erroneously believe and mistakenly enter my kingdom. 
Folks, what a declaration of sovereignty. Jesus' use of parables is, as Isaiah was, judgment on those who are outside his kingdom. Parables function like a, an impermeable moat that surrounds a castle and, and protects a kingdom from those who don't belong in that kingdom. This is Jesus' explanation of Isaiah's, Here I am, Lord, send me. Any confusion as to why Isaiah was reportedly sawn in half by King Manasseh? Not a great message Isaiah came with. Not a very positive message. And both Isaiah and Jesus declared, employing the same scripture, folks, that you are outside the kingdom, and God has decided to ensure through my preaching, whether it be Isaiah or Jesus in the use of parables, God is ensuring by my preaching, there's no way you're even getting in the kingdom. Old Testament or New Testament, doesn't matter. People say, well, that's the Old Testament. No, it's the New Testament too. Jesus says so. How do we then reconcile that as Christians? This is the tough part. How do we reconcile that with the statement, God is not willing that any should perish? That's given in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. How do you reconcile that Jesus is obscuring his message in parables so that there's no outside chance that these people could even believe with God's not willing that any should perish? Well, you reconcile it actually quite easily when you look not only at that one verse that we've memorized from a very early age in our faith, but when you look closely at the content of 2 Peter. 2 Peter is a letter primarily concerning God's judgment, folks. Peter recounts how God rescued Noah during that day of judgment. Peter also recalls righteous Lot and how God rescued him from Sodom during that day of judgment. And then in chapter 3, Peter encourages Christians, that is the beloved of God, he encourages Christians as we wait on the final day of judgment. Peter's audience simply wanted to know, why hasn't God judged the earth yet? Why hasn't God come, uh, they're asking Peter, and judged the wickedness? And Peter essentially responds, saying, Beloved, don't be troubled about the wickedness that surrounds you. Judgment will come in God's timing. And besides, to God, a thousand years is like a day, right? Remember that? Be patient, Peter is saying. Nonetheless, God is not slow about his promise. That is to judge the world. He's not slow about his promise, but he is patient towards you, not wishing for any of you to perish. Now, if we put on our thinking caps, who are the you that God is being patient towards? Who, who is Peter speaking to in his letter? Who are the ones to whom Peter promises in chapter 1, verse 11, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of, the Lord, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you? He's making that promise. Who are the you that God is promising will not perish in judgment? Folks, the you are the beloved of God. 
The you are the elect of God who are patiently waiting for God to judge the earth just as He had judged beforehand to bring judgment upon the non-elect. And just as through the ark God preserved Noah, that's Peter's first illustration, and just like when the angels seized the lot of hand, uh, hand of Lot and yanked him to safety out of Sodom, Peter is reminding his readers that neither is God willing that any of you, not even one of his elect, one of his chosen, will perish. Peter even reassures them in 2 Peter 2 verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. He separated them already. God will rescue every single one that he has chosen from the foundation of the world. That is his promise. Just as God did with Noah and just as he rescued Lot, and God is delaying the final judgment until every single one of his chosen comes to repentance. That, that, that's why we patiently wait here as well in his church. Christ is still in the process of building his church. So we patiently wait. He's adding to it. What would really be actually... I'll just say inappropriate to suggest, would be that Peter is implying that God is not willing that anybody should perish at all. Peter used the illustrations of Noah, where the entire population of the planet perished, minus eight, they got to go in the ark. And he uses the illustration of Lot, where the entire civilizations were wiped out, except for Lot and his two daughters. Wouldn't that really be bizarre if Peter were to use those illustrations of the destruction of the entire earth through a flood and the destruction of numerable large city, cities surrounding Sodom and Gomorrah through fire and brimstone to then suggest that God isn't willing that anybody would perish? That's not what Peter's talking about. If that were actually God's will, that nobody would perish, then God failed miserably when he flooded the earth. Then God failed miserably when he leveled wicked Sodom. But the actual lesson from Peter is that our God never fails when his mission is to rescue the beloved. His beloved, just as he did for Noah and just as he did for Lot, he will do for you if you are willing to believe in Christ and put your faith in him. You will be rescued. If not, there will be judgment. That, that's a complete theme of Peter. Judgment is coming. God is going to rescue his elect. That's what Peter's talking about. And he's not willing that any of them will perish. Jesus uses parables himself as God's judgment against those who don't belong in his kingdom. Ensuring there's no way they're ever going to get into his kingdom. And by using parables, Jesus suggests, you know, I'm not even going to speak the word of God directly to you anymore. I'm not going to give you that direct revelation any longer in my ministry. I'm going to now obscure it going forward. I'm going to use parables going forward. Folks, that is judgment. Why? Because the word of God is the only mechanism that saves. 
That's the only thing that can save is the word of God. And now Jesus is saying, I'm not even going to give you the direct word of God any longer. I'm going to obscure it so that seeing you won't perceive and hearing you won't even understand. It's judgment. If you obscure the message through parables, it guarantees hearers won't enter the kingdom unless God rescues them. Peter again says in 1 Peter 1.13, You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God. That's the only way anybody ever gets saved. Folks, in any civilization, throughout the history of mankind, anyone where the word of God is either obscured, or whether it is forcibly made silent, whenever you see that in a civilization, God's judgment has come upon that civilization. The Word of God is the only thing that can save. The only thing. That's why, as Scripture and, and Dallas Seminary motto, uh, their motto says, we preach the Word. Folks, we preach the Word of God clearly. And in doing so, we're, we're not the instrument of God's wrath. The church is the instrument of God's mercy on people. As we preach the Word of God. Parables are also a manifestation of God's mercy because the more Jesus kept revealing to these people about who He was, these, these Pharisees and these people that would resist Him and reject them and the thorny soil and the, and the uh, um, rocky soil, uh, the more that He would just keep on telling those bad soils that aren't in the kingdom anyhow, the just the more judgment would be poured on them. The more you know about Christ and the more you reject, the more judgment will come. So Christ is even willing to restrain some of the revelation so that even for them, there will be more mercy. God is merciful. Even in judgment, God is merciful. So parables are both manifestations of God's judgment and His mercy, and we'll be seeing them going forward now uh, throughout Luke as Jesus continues to teach in parables. Yet to those who follow Him, those who are his disciples, those who belong to him, we will understand. We have the Spirit of God. We will receive the parable. Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 13, verse 11, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. They're not in the kingdom. Sovereignty and election. So in Luke chapter 8, verse 12, now that we know why Jesus used or uses parables. The soil beside the road signifies hard hearts. We next find the superficial, superficial hearts. All these soils, by the way, all of them are uh, types of soil, conditions of the heart. In verse 13, those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, they receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root, they believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. These have no root. Their belief, quote-unquote belief, it's superficial. No rooting. No roots. There are people who, are, who intellectually, they, they like some of the things that Jesus says. They love it when he talks forgiveness, compassion, mercy. Intellectually, they like that. They say, oh yes, I like that. They, some of them even display a semblance of faith. They might even appear as though they're believers for a season. But there, there's no heart transformation. No heart transformation. So when the temptation arrives, Jesus says that they fall away. 
They fall away. Um, fall away, that's the same term that's used in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The warning passage of Hebrews, it says, take, uh, excuse me, uh, Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Take care, brethren. They apostatize. Apostatize, excuse me. The Apostle John puts it this way, They went out of us because they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained, right? But they went out of us so that it would be made manifest that they were never really of us. They fell away. They apostatized. They, they, they didn't lose their salvation. They never had a salvation. In Matthew 13, Jesus says of this same rocky soil, He has no firm root in Himself, but it is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the Word, immediately He falls away. The person didn't lose salvation. Belief was superficial. For that reason, the people in this category, they can't endure persecution for the sake of the Word. They can't endure affliction for what the Word says, the Word of God. And when unbelieving friends or unbelieving family members come and they poke them, and they'll say things like, you mean you actually believe that loving Jesus would send anyone to hell? They look at you with amazement and you have to say, yeah, He sure is. But He has given a path to reconciliation through the cross. And when it comes to biblical views on marriage and on abortion and other things, and the Word of God is, is clear in these matters, and your friends come to you and say, you mean you actually believe that? Well, you're so unloving. You're so intolerant. And, and, and folks in this category, uh, they begin to make apology for the Word of God. Oh, I, I don't really know if that's what it means. Eventually, if they stop talking about it altogether, they'll either abandon church, at least one that preaches the Word, or, or maybe they'll seek out a churchy experience elsewhere that minimizes the Word of God. Either way, they fall away from the true faith. They fall away. Hebrews 13.12 says, Take care, brethren, that there be not any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Then in verse 14, beware of this one, folks. Beware of this one. This, this is the most precarious right here. This is the most precarious. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they're choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. Do you notice the, the progression in these soils here? Uh, first, you've got the hard soil. Nothing sprouts, just gets snatched away. Then, then you got the rocky soil, and it sprouts quickly and withers just as quick because there's no moisture. Now you've got seed that's fallen amongst the thorns, the thicket, and it begins to grow. It grows along with the thicket. It's no surprise it grows with the thicket because the thorn was already there when the seed was sown. It was already present in their lives by the time they heard the Word of God. So it kind of tries to grow together. You know what I'm saying? 
And, and the thorns of worry and, and of the riches and of the pleasures of life, they, they were always there. They were there from the beginning. They just kept on growing. The thorns just kept on growing. It, it suggests for that person there wasn't a clear commitment to Christ, a separation from their past. He who is in Christ is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That, that just didn't happen for these folks. Um, it, it is most precarious because the word has grown a little, but the fruit never reaches maturity. Never reaches maturity. It, it, it's budding, but it's a lot like in your garden. The weeds come into your flowers and they overtake and they, they snuff it out. Anybody having a crabgrass problem right now? I am. It comes and it works its way in and it overtakes. And eventually, if you don't do something about it, it snuffs, snuffs out what's supposed to be there. It's the way thorns are. It's the way thorns are. They, they choke out the Word of God. That's what thorns in your life do. They choke it out. And, and the battle rages to produce fruit, fruit to maturity, the text says, Who's going to win? Is it going to be the thorns or is it going to be the Word? The Word will produce its fruit of righteousness. The Word will produce its fruit of service to Christ. Meanwhile, the world is going to attempt to choke out both your righteousness and your service to Christ. That's the thorns, the world. The first comes the thorns of worry. Worry about life. Worry about what people think about me. Worry about my friends. Uh, What do they think of me? How do I look? How do I measure up to the world? How how do my old friends perceive me? You know, I really can't give up all those years invested. I put a lot of time into this life that I've had, and I really don't want it to just turn away from it and completely turn towards Christ. I spent a lot of time nurturing these thorns. They're very precious to me, these thorns. I I love these thorns. Maybe I'll just let the Word grow along with the thorns, right? They They can grow together. Maybe I can still go out with my buddies and do what we used to do before I was a Christian. In fact, I'll be the designated driver. Or... Or movie night with the girlfriends. Maybe I can just still do that the way I always did it. And, you know, if there's any vulgarity or sexual content, you know, I'll just dismiss myself quickly to the bathroom. And I'll just, you know, defend myself that way. But really, you'll be cracking through the door, won't you? There's not a separation. Jesus, would he ask us to give up our previous life in order to serve? In order to... Um, live for Him. Even a life where you've invested a lot of time, a lot of, of uh, effort into cultivating your previous life, would He ask you uh, to give that up? Worries about relationships, worries about health, worries about status, folks, you get the point. Worries of the world, worries of the world, they will choke out the Word of God. 
How about other thorns? You got thorns of riches, we are told. You know, you could say for years, you know, I've, before becoming a Christian, I made, made my living by kind of fudging on taxes and inventory and kind of cheating on pricing and being a little dishonest. I, I, I can't change my business model now. You know, I won't be able to make a decent profit and my kids will go hungry and Jesus wouldn't want that, right? Besides, you know, if I have a really good year, then I could give more to the church in my dishonesty. These are the types of things that we rationalize, folks. That's what the flesh does. We rationalize in our mind, our our behavior. It's just thorns. It's thorns overtaking the Word of God. We, We could justify about anything. We could justify about any type of behavior if we want to. But it gets worse, folks. It gets worse. There are thorns of pleasures. Thorns of pleasures. You know, I, I've always enjoyed thorns of pleasures. God, God wouldn't want me to not enjoy pleasure, right? I wouldn't have to sacrifice my pleasures, earthly pleasures, folks. Those are thorns that tangle us up. Pursuing pleasures chokes out spiritual fruit so that you cannot progress to maturity. You can't produce fruit to maturity. Now, this doesn't suggest a person who has never gotten into church. Doesn't suggest a person who has never done a good deed now and then. That's not what we're talking about here. They've never matured. That's the problem. Um, they never mature in Christ. We're talking here with this soil false converts. They have a profession of faith similar to the rocky soil. That sprung up quick. But here it takes longer in the fade. Could take a long period of time uh, in the thicket before it gets choked out by the thorns. They don't spiritually grow up. The thorns uh, present when the seed was sown years ago, they're they're still a strong influence in that person's life today. Not a lot has changed. Their affections have not transferred to Christ so that they can bear mature fruit because their greatest affections are for uh, their life previous to Christ. Pleasures of the world. They're unable to consistently deny pleasure for the sake of Christ's kingdom congregating to worship with the body of Christ, the people of God, the chosen of God, as Scripture requires, that becomes choked out. It becomes number two. The pleasures become number one. Christ's body becomes number two on the list. Serving Christ's body, as we'll probably read that, Matthew 25 next week, the service to Christ's body, it's not their primary passion of their life. Um, a facade of service might be worked in now and then to make a good showing. Yeah, I'm going to slip that in. There's nothing else in my calendar, so maybe I can go in and have a showing here. No, genera- no regeneration of the heart here, remember. Um, as long as there's nothing else entertaining on their calendar, they'll, they'll get involved. So their life in Christ, it eventually gets choked out by the pleasures of the world. They skip church so often they lose connection with others. They become happy when they miss ministry announcements because then they don't feel accountable to take part. There's a reluctance to chip in. Folks, the thorns were there from the beginning. It, it, it was their first love. Thorns are their first love. So if they enjoyed party night on Saturdays before professing Christ, they won't deny self and get to bed early after 
professing Christ. It's a thorn. If hitting beach was their passion previously, they'll skip ministry events repeatedly just so they can hit the beach. It's a thorn. It's a thorn. If Sunday morning was a great day for their their favorite hobby, it remains a great day for their favorite hobby. And their church relationships will slowly be choked out by their love of thorns. They'll make excuses. We've all made them. You know, I miss church, but I'll pick up a radio broadcast along the way and I'll make up for it. Um, Better teaching on the radio, anyhow, you'll hear. Uh, They begin to subliminally suggest to themselves, you know, I, I don't think this church is as good as I first thought. You know, I'm not sure their doctrine is as good as I first thought. Maybe, maybe this isn't the place for me. You know, maybe, actually, you know, I don't think anybody likes me here. It's things we start telling ourselves. The thorns start to choke us out. They search for a reason to withdraw. Withdraw from church. Withdraw from discipleship. Withdraw from service. Withdraw from relationships. Why? Because they love the thorns. It's the thorns of the world, folks. They think there's no accountability to the thorns, no denial of flesh in the thorns, no demands made by thorns. Folks, that's the people who have began their walk and they get choked out by thorns. And there comes a day they say to themselves, you know, I'm just going to run off and marry my thorns. We're going to elope. We're going to elope. We're going to be gone. It sprouted for a while, maybe even years. No fruit bearing maturity. Folks, we have to be careful of this. The church today is telling people they can have them both. All the pleasures of the world along with your Christianese. This is the most precarious place we are today in the church. You can't have them both, folks. Our flesh would love to have them both. But for the true Convert, the gospel keeps on bearing fruit. As Colossians 1 verse 6 says, just as, as in all the world, the gospel is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. You have to grow and mature and bear fruit. John the Baptist in Luke 3 verse 8, keep on bearing fruit. That'll show what kind of soil you are. Whether you're good soil or whether you're thorny soil or rocky soil, you have to keep bearing fruit. That's the most deceptive part of this. The thorns of passion here, folks, they aren't even inherently sinful. Scripture doesn't say immorality. It just says pleasures. They, they fill the place of Christ in your life. So your hobby isn't necessarily sinful. Hitting the beach and getting a sun-kissed tan, folks, that isn't necessarily sinful. Knocking the ball around on the green in the morning is not necessarily sinful. Unless they're choking out your life in Christ. Then they all become sinful. They all become sinful. So what do you do? What do you do? If Sunday morning's the only tea time you can schedule to knock the ball around, which it isn't. You can knock the ball around lots of times. But if it were, then you need to give it up. If 
Your hobbies are interfering with ministry at the church level, chipping in at the church level, um, which is plenty of time for us to enjoy what we, we like to enjoy without getting choked out, folks. Scripture says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Howard Hendricks, renowned professor of Dallas, at Dallas Seminary, professor of hermeneutics, used to tell the students, he's passed now, but he'd say, this book will keep you from sin, and sin will keep you from this book. I'd just like to add my own humble caveat with this, considering the thorns and the soils and other things. Your church, being faithful to your church, will keep you from sin. And sin will keep you from your church. That is a fact. You know, does that chafe anyone? Thank you for being honest. (laughs) If your conscience is clear, you should be able to enjoy things. Parables given to us to beware of what kind of heart we have, folks. Are we producing fruit? If not, that's a big problem. Mature fruit, maturing Christians. If not, it's a big problem. Everyone can be susceptible to thorns. We need to continually have the reminder that we're supposed to be hitting them constantly with Roundup. That's a fact. Hitting them with Roundup. We've looked at three soils, folks. One, the seed doesn't even sprout. Another, the seed sprouts, withers quickly in the sun. A third, the seed sprouts, it grows, it gets choked out slowly over a long period of time. None of these soils bear mature fruit. Not consistently. So, so far there's been a harvest of what? Zero. So far, no harvest among these soils. Uh, None represents a genuine believer, no crop. You know, Dad taught me on the farm, you gotta sow. You gotta keep on sowing if you plan on reaping. And next week... We will continue in verse 15 to see what is produced in good soil. Soil that will produce some 30, 60, and 100 fold, according to Matthew. And that's how uh, the soil produces its yield. Um, We'll learn about that in the parable of the lamp, so we know how to produce that yield. That'll be part two of how to sow a bumper crop. That's enough for today. Let's pray. Father, oh, your word is so precious. And Lord, your truth eternal is uh, we all see this uh, in church. Anyone who's been in church for a while has seen all four of these soils over and over again. Lord, some springs up, some withers, uh, some seed perseveres, Lord, and we know that that is, um, according to your word, uh, the true, the true Christian one that bears fruit into maturity. Lord, as we look next week at uh, verse 15, and the yield, the harvest that comes uh, from the seed being sown in a soil uh, that is fertile and rich, Lord, we pray that you'll strengthen us as godly people. Lord, to go out and do your work, enjoy, enjoy our lives, Lord. Um, enjoy what you've given us. And uh, Lord, Do it in a way that brings honor and glory to Christ. Father, um, bless us this day. Bless our afternoon. 
Uh, encourage us as we encourage one another and love one another in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.